This is a recording of the session on What Kind of Left Does Labour Need? at Ideas for Freedom 2019. You'll hear from two speakers, plus their responses to the discussion from the floor. The speakers are Seema Sayada, a Labour and Momentum activist, and Ed Maltby from Workers' Liberty. Welcome to the, uh, the meeting, What Kind of Left Does Labour Need? We've got two speakers. We've got Ed Maltby, who's a kind of left-wing activist, who'll be speaking for about 15 minutes and also uh, Seema Seda, who's on the Labour for Socialist Europe Committee, and also author of the book Creeping Fascism. They'll, they will do a lead-off each, then we'll, we'll take questions, comments, and then come back at the end for a, for a summation. So once Dan sat down, I think we're ready to go. Eddie, you okay to go first? Yeah, sure. So, I think if we're talking about what kind of Labour Party we need, I think, I think the place to start is by asking why socialists are bothered about the Labour Party in the first place. So I think for some people you see around, there's this idea of a kind of timeless and obvious connection to Labour. Often that's espoused by people who only joined the Labour Party in 2015. But there is like a subculture out there of people for whom being a Labour man is an identity. And it's kind of a sufficient explanation of what you're doing in the Labour Party. But when I got involved in politics was I, when I was a teenager, it was under a Labour government that was organising the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. It was a, a Labour government that brought in the detention of... Well, it, it massively expanded the detention of migrants, including migrant children. It tried to introduce ID cards. It intervened in strikes on the side of the bosses, like Gordon Brown did with Royal Mail in 2007, like Labour Mayor of London Ken Livingstone did in 2004 when he urged railway workers to cross picket lines. Uh, tuition fees began under Labour. The first big cuts to higher education were made under Labour. Academies were rolled out. League tables were extended. And Britain's incredibly restrictive anti-trade union laws were retained. And that isn't new. That's not so much of an aberration, although in some respects Blair's government was an aberration. Uh, but Labour governments have overseen the partition of India, the administration of the British Empire, imperial wars in Malaysia, Yemen, Korea and elsewhere. Uh, they upheld restrictions on Jewish refugees in the 40s, uh, fleeing to Palestine and so on. So socialists need a specific reason for wanting to be involved in the Labour Party. And that's not because, on the basis of the experience of the 20th century, we regard a Labour government as being an end in itself. You know, we've got a reason why we want that. So Lenin uh, described the Labour Party as being a bourgeois workers' party, so a party of, that consists of workers, but which is led by reactionaries and pro-capitalist politicians. And his advice to communists in the UK in 1920, and you know, they had a big row about this, he had a big row with Sylvia Pankhurst and Willie Gallagher about this, uh, was that communists should affiliate to the Labour Party and make arguments for socialism and revolution to its working class membership. And in a word, I think that's the answer to the question of what is it we're doing, why are we interested in the Labour Party. So a lot of things have changed in the working class and in the world since 1920, but the basic structure of the Labour Party isn't really one of them. It's still the political party that the UK working class is affiliated with. Its leadership has moved substantially to the left since the Blair days, but it's still pro-capitalist. And the policies of Labour's leadership right now are not adequate from the point of view of making a socialist world and really changing society. So according to Corbyn's shadow cabinet, the next Labour government will keep academies, stay in NATO, 
keep selling arms around the world, um, end freedom of movement, keep most of the UK's detention centres operating, try to carry out Brexit and respond to street crime by expanding the police force. And that's just to name a few policies and to say nothing of the current record of Labour councils, whether on the left or the right, uh, so to speak, where they're in power right now. And on climate change, Labour's last leaked manifesto offered virtually nothing. There's some big words out there in the media, but actually what's on paper is there will be some new national parks, and that's it. So another telling thing is the democratic culture of the Labour Party. So the story of Labour's line on Brexit and on freedom of movement is the story of the leader's office fighting the membership, kicking members' anti-Brexit representations into the long grass and sidestepping anti-Brexit sentiment with some fancy footwork in the conference compositing meetings. Um, As under Blair, policy is announced on the hoof and members find out about policy through the media. Uh, The leadership licence left movement, Momentum, has emptied itself out. It's abolished its own democratic elected committees and um, it's it's, uh, it's spent a lot of time fighting against the initiatives of local groups and it's concentrated initiative and decision-making power in an office somewhere in South London when members basically can have no say over what momentum does and that's the official left wing in the party um, and of course there's the fig leaf of occasional online plebiscites which almost no one bothers voting in where Labour's in power at the local council level whether it's with a standard issue right wing group or with a so called momentum council like you have in Harringay they retain the strong leader model um, of how we run a council and a culture and a structure that rules out the membership's ability to meaningfully hold councillors to account. Um, so you take a step back and you look at it. It's a party with an oligarchical structure where councillors are only beholden to council cabinet members, uh, where MPs are beholden only to themselves and are often fighting their local membership and in many cases treat even their own staff pretty disgracefully. The leader's office, office staff sets policy and the momentum office staff fights against grassroots criticism of that policy, and all of them work one way or another to wall themselves off from membership pressure. That is not a workers' party which is bent on creating socialism and democratising society. That is a party that in its culture and structure, even now, is basically going to slot into the oligarchic system of British capitalist democracy, where MPs are these untouchable gentlemen who can do whatever they like and, you know, where councillors are sort of the same but on a smaller level. Um, And if you hang around the national youth and student structures of the party, you can see wealthy, aspiring future oligarchs uh, waving red flags while they clamber over each other up the career ladder. So, look, we're not in this game because we want this social force I've just described to make a government. And... Likewise, we're not, it's not an adequate goal if we want a truly just society for us just to say that all we want is to end austerity. Now, of course, we want a Labour government. You know, even this Labour Party right now, we want it to make a government and we want it to end austerity for, uh, for all of that means. It's, it's 
urgent and it's important that we undo the worst misery that the Tories have been inflicting on people since 2010. And that's that's something immediate that, that we need to do, very practical reasons. But we mustn't let the cruelty and the pain of Tory rule narrow our own vision into something that's unambitious and something that's purely defensive. We should have our eyes on bigger things if we want to really make the change that we want. Because ending austerity is only a negative slogan. All that it really suggests positively is going back to how things were in 2008. And the social order that was built before austerity, under 13-odd years of Labour government, under Blair and Brown, those, that social order laid the foundations of what the Tories went on to do, from detention centres and academies to deepening anti-trade union legislation, persecuting foreigners, persecuting the unemployed. The foundations were laid by what came before the crisis and before the start of austerity. Socialists have a, big, a bigger and broader vision of what we want. And we want to see industry taken into public ownership and run democratically by the people who work in it. We want to see democracy spread from a narrow political sphere into everyday life, starting with the workplace. We want to see climate change averted and minimised by putting industry at the disposal of democracy and of social need instead of profit. We want a society that's organised along the principles that animate the best of what the NHS represents or used to represent, which is the mobilisation of vast resources to care for and educate people with no thought for private profit. The people who can make those things happen are in the Labour Party. Labour has half a million members, although at the moment perhaps 5% of them attend meetings regularly. And the membership of trade unions affiliated to Labour is at least another 4 million. Um, so that is the social force that working class membership of Labour is the social force that we want to see raise its voice in politics and at work. That is the social force that we want to see inspired and organised around a programme that reflects its authentic interests. And that's a socialist programme. That's what I've outlined. I think a lot of people around the Corbyn movement think of politics strictly in terms of state action or what can be done from office. In some cases, what can be done from the leader's office. The idea is, you know, we get some good lefties elected to government, and then they legislate for some decent left-wing things. Inevitably, these envisioned decent left-wing things aren't actually very ambitious, um, and that reflects something important: that the achievements of left-wing governments that think only in terms of getting and keeping office, they're invariably fragile and short-lived where they're not upheld and protected by a strong working class movement outside of parliament. And the recent experience of left-wing governments, from Mitterrand uh, in France in the 80s to Syriza in Greece more recently, that bears this out. Those two left-wing governments, very little of their legacy is left because these governments tried to shore up their power in office, thinking purely in terms of keeping on top of... Um, keeping on top of the, the political situation by compromising with capitalist classes, by moderating their program, moderating their message. And in order to do that, they had to reel in the working class base that voted them into office. And the result of that is, again, very little of what they've done, what, they, what they've done remains. Um, it's been demolished. And what's more, the Parliamentary Labour Party is not by and large made up of the kind of decent lefties who we would trust to legislate good things. 
And we won't improve matters on that front by talking up their recently acquired socialist camouflage. So to make possible the changes that we would want a Labour government to make, we need an invigorated workers' movement that asserts itself politically and industrially. And one of the first things we should be seeking to do in the Labour Party is bringing that about. And we should be launching a recruitment drive. We should be bringing new, young, working-class members of the party into active membership, not just paying a direct debit and voting online once in a while. We should be going out into communities and workplaces with Labour activists and organising to renew and expand our active membership. Labour parties should run organising drives amongst young workers. We should expand political education at the branch level. And Labour wards should be fused with community campaigns and organisations as closely as possible. And from middle-class door knockers getting the vote out in working-class areas, Labour organisation needs to be transformed into a vehicle for working-class self-expression and socialist education. That job's most important amongst young people. We need a youth movement that's rooted at the ward level, is no longer dependent on university students as it is now, and no longer centred on national or city-wide events mostly attended by young people with an interest in developing a political career, be it on the left or on the right. That means, in order to do those things, we've got to fight for a democratic culture in Labour. We need to fight against the bunker mentality on the left, which regards left-wing critics of the leadership and actually Labour activists in general as Blairite fifth columnists. Uh, we need to subordinate councils and MPs to the control of wards and constituency parties. In Haringey, our comrades helped to organise a conference of local trade unions and party activists which drew up the council manifesto and said, look, this is the voice of grassroots members telling you what your manifesto is going to be. We should do more things like that. We should spread that kind of model of grassroots democracy in councils. We need mandatory reselection to change the balance of power between MPs and party members, and we need to restore a sovereign Labour Party conference and do away with the National Policy Forum and replace it with an expanded year-round system of democratic policy development. In terms of policy, we need to approach the question of climate change, first of all, with the urgency that it deserves. And that means major infrastructural work funded by taxing the rich and taking major polluters and energy companies into public ownership. Now, that won't be achieved without quite a big political crisis, and it won't be achieved without a big movement on the streets and in workplaces to underwrite it and make it possible. More broadly, we want to make sure that the work of Labour washing away the crap of Tory rule goes as far as possible. We don't just want to get rid of the latest Tory Anti-Trade Union Act from 2016. We want to get rid of all anti-union laws passed in the last 100 years. We want to abolish academies and smash the testing regime. We want to cancel student debt and reinstate living grants for all. We want the NHS to be effectively re-nationalised and rebuilt with a democratic management regime that's based on health workers themselves calling the shots. We want to undo tax cuts and loopholes for the rich and reverse cuts to local government services. And that also means restoring the autonomy of local government from the centre, which Thatcher did away with. Um, we want a real housing policy that guarantees decent housing for everyone with stringent controls on landlords and the requisitioning of housing stock that's being kept empty by speculators. We want nuclear disarmament, open borders and a drive to organise migrant workers alongside UK-born workers, which requires in the first instance equal rights for all, regardless of your immigration status. We want an end of, to deportation and detention centres and no recourse to public funds, which is a necessary precondition of equal rights. 
All these policies I'm describing are immediate emergency measures about undoing the worst abuses of the last government and indeed the last several governments. At every step, these immediate emergency measures, which only go a little bit further than ending austerity, they will face serious opposition from the capitalists. To overcome that opposition, we won't be able to rely on the Parliamentary Labour Party or indeed on most Labour councils. We'll only win even this kind of very limited policy that goes beyond ending <coughs> austerity and the basics of what a Labour government might do in a rather unambitious way and points beyond it to something bigger and more ambitious. We'll only be able to win those limited policies by building up a renewed working class movement that's active at work, active in policy, politics and communities, and which restores the idea that the working class should have a programme of its own, should demand a programme that's 100% in its own interests. And that's what we're talking about, beginning that work and beginning it through the ambitious set of immediate and emergency policies that I've outlined here. If we win these things, we won't have dismantled capitalism, but we will have started to unlock the social forces that make socialism possible. So that's what I think you should do. Thank you very much, Ed. Seema? Thank you, Ed. Um, so I'm Seema, uh, co-author of Creeping Fascism, and I think I should start by just giving you a little bit of information about myself. And also, sorry if you can't hear me too well, I've had a, a sinus infection for a few weeks, so I've been a bit um, down and recovering from that. Um, but before I start talking a bit about myself, could I just ask, if, you're a if you self-identify as a woman, could you put your hand up? Um, if you self-identify as a woman from a Muslim background, could you put your hand up? Okay, so that's just me. Um, if you come from a Muslim background, could you put your hand up? And if you have a Bangladeshi heritage, could you put your hand up? So there's two. Okay, so we're in Camden, which is London Borough of Camden. Um, I have a lot of family members who live on council estates uh, near here. And a few, I think it was last year, there was a report that came out that said the most economically disadvantaged group in Britain is Muslim women. Um, so one of the big questions, I think, and I'm trying to think about things that I can say that are different to what Ed said, because I think a lot of people probably have, have a lot of agreement uh, about what you've said. And one of the big things that I've noticed since I became an activist on the left, which hasn't really been that long, it was only really in October last year that I became active in the Labour Party, um, is the real lack of engagement with ethnic minority communities, not just ethnic minority communities, but women as well, and oppressed groups in general. It's a very male-dominated arena, especially a very white, middle-class-dominated arena. And I'm not trying to um, do down the efforts of, uh, of you know, the many white, middle-class activists who, who exist in the labour movement and on the left, um, it's all re really brilliant work that they're doing. But if we want to be a mass movement that represents the most vulnerable and disadvantaged groups, those vulnerable and disadvantaged groups need to be there at the forefront of the movement because who will know better what, what groups like ours need than those people? And also, who will have the drive and the urgency once, the, once they also have the consciousness of, 
of the causes of the, that structural disadvantage to, to break down those barriers. So one of the reasons why I'm, I've become an activist is, um, and I think this might shed some light on why it's so hard to engage some of these groups, um, is because historically in my life there, there have been lots of struggles. So my mum, as a, as a Bangladeshi Muslim woman, she faced a lot of racism, discrimination. Often you know, she'd find that she was coming up against and fighting these issues in the workplace. That leads to sort of like dismissals or not being able to stay in jobs long enough, a, a lack of financial stability. Um, that had a knock-on effect. And um, so my family, we had a lot of homelessness. So when I was a teenager, uh, we were evicted. We were evicted when I was at uni. We were evicted a few more times. So all of this fed into a real struggle. Um, my mum was a single parent. My father passed away when I was at uni. The government that we need and that we want to see, and the and the policies that are going to be implemented to help people who are in similar situations to mine or worse, which there are many. Um, we'll have to implement policies to help these people and those policies need to be fully developed um, in conjunction with such people and will only really be achieved if such people are involved in the mass movement that fights for them to be implemented. So that's one of the problems. So moving away from like, my personal history and my personal stories, what are the other problems with the Labour left that I've noticed? Firstly, I think there's a bit of a sort of messianic faith that Corbyn will just solve everything. So um, as I've started to become an activist, I really care about issues like, you know, rent and how can we get rental controls? How can we make sure there's stable housing in my uh, in my local area? Even though I have a full-time job, I, find, I struggle to find stable housing, let alone what my family had been through. Um, racism that's happening, you know, uh, almost becoming endemic, I think, with the rise of the hate, hate rhetoric since the 2016 referendum, what can we do to tackle these issues? Um, and what I found actually now that I've joined the Labour Party is that you know there's a there's a bit of a nod towards these issues, and there's a you know there's a rhetorical sort of declamation of how bad these things are. Maybe you know we we'll get a speaker in at your branch meeting to talk about how bad it is, and there's a motion, and then that's it. Getting people out onto the street in campaigns, lobbying politicians, lobbying, um, you know, local institutions that might be relevant to whatever issues are at play, exposing racism on the council, actually building movements locally, campaigns, protests, um, to, to struggle against this. I'm not really seeing any of that happening. All of the energy just seems to be focused into winning over the Labour bureaucracy. And then once installed in the Labour bureaucracy, it's about sort of fighting, you know, the right wing and and also about sort of getting the right people into the right positions. And um, you mentioned mandatory reselection. In principle, I'm quite open to this idea. It's obviously a way to make um, MPs more accountable to the membership. But at the same time, I'm a bit wary of a lot of these principles which are, are on the face of it, they seem to be about democracy and openness on the left. But actually... Um, is that the real intention when bringing these uh, rule changes into play, or is it more about winning control? Because um, you're talking about lots of careerists all, all around the Labour Party, you know, and I think now that Jeremy Corbyn has become leader and the left is sort of uh, ha has made a lot of headway, there are a lot of people who sort of pop up and speak left, and actually it's about getting a. Uh, being selected as a parliamentary candidate and things like that. 
So if we have all of these mandatory reselections, will we just be replacing, you know, the old guard with a new guard that is, again, as you, as you mentioned, a sort of oligarchy? So I think all of these rule changes and structural changes in the Labour Party, they're great in principle, but actually we need to do the groundwork. So that groundwork is going around on council estates and engaging people who are actually in the working class. That groundwork is creating a culture within the left which is welcoming for women and ethnic minorities and other oppressed groups, LGBT plus groups. And I think um, they're really... There really does appear to be, from you know, reading newspapers or reading reports, um, my own personal experience. I feel like there is a culture of, you know, if someone's a really strong and great left-wing activist that people have known for a long time, but actually privately they're quite aggressive or abusive or towards women, or there's a history of harassment or something's happened. It seems like these kind of things are not really seriously dealt with. A lot of the time there might be some cover-ups or, you know, I'm not saying this happens all of the time, but I think this idea of, like, being able to come out and openly speak about things like bullying, intimidation, aggression, or racial prejudice, it's really, really difficult. Um, so one of the ways that I think this can all be changed, and, and, and one of the things that needs to be changed is... Um, creating a mass movement that is politically educated and critical. So instead of, make, instead of what we have now, which is just Corbyn <coughs> cheerleading, we need to have classes, workshops run by activists, run by experts, um, run by people who know about the issue, issues like uh, racial prejudice, about sexism, who know about how to create more opening cultures, who know about how to engage ethnic minority communities, how to engage Muslim women. Because there are... There are so many people out there who do this like as their professional careers, as their professional jobs, who are who are, who are day to day engaging these groups, and they might not be as engaged with the Labour Party, or they might not know be that up on the theory of socialism, but they have knowledge and expertise that the, the left and the Labour left really, really, really needs and is really lacking, and needs to open that up to be able to engage the groups um, that I've mentioned. So. Engaging people like that, holding classes, holding events, making sure that the entire membership is educated. You know, something like, something that has been, you know, touted a lot within the Labour movement uh, recently over the past few years, given the context, the anti-Semitism context, is just education about anti-Semitism and what it means rolled out to the entire membership. I don't see, like, why that would ever really be problematic and why maybe it hasn't been done yet. I think it's something that really should be done. So something similar in terms of other kinds of racial prejudices and, and in, t in terms of sexism or misogyny, I think would be brilliant because the, the thousands of activists who have joined the Labour Party now are just the beginning if the left really wants to make an impact, if we really want to build socialism. And those thousands of activists need to be armed with, with the tools to recruit more activists and make it and make the Labour left into a proper mass movement. So onto that question of making the Labour left a proper mass movement, the structures of the Labour Party really do milita militate against democracy and militate 
against creating a mass movement, as you mentioned. I think this the hierarchical structures, the way there's like a really clear career path to climb, like mm. become a secretary in your CLP, and then you get to the regional board, and then you get to the NEC, and I can't believe I know what the NEC is, having only been here for a few months and all of these acronyms, but it seems really, really clear. And the way to keep moving up is to just parrot the line, is, is how I, what I feel, and like make, make it really mm. obvious how loyal you are. And this is something that's really, I found it really alarming because I thought this left was about like politics and principles and, uh, and being critical and, and ideas and that's not something that seems to have really been um, coming through but I think that can be changed and the way that it can be changed has to be by people just taking the initiative and self-organising I don't think there's we can wait for the Labour Party to come to us and to transform people have to transform the Labour Party so we, you know it's about organising locally at a grassroots level to implement the changes that we want to see without necessarily asking for permission for our branch secretaries and our CLP secretaries. People need to just start doing it. They need to start going around knocking on council estates, talking to, to, to everybody who lives there, talking about the Labour Party, talking about their mission for the Labour Party. If they're not a member trying to recruit, um, and, and if they don't want to recruit or join the Labour Party, talking about the political issue of the day and raising class consciousness. Um, I'll tell you who is doing that, the far right. So, um, and I, I don't think the Labour left is doing it enough, but the far right is definitely doing it. So that comes to the next thing, which is the urgency that the left really needs to be imbued with right now. We cannot wait for a Labour government to, to get into power. The far right has creeped into government across the globe they're building in the uk right now this is an existential threat i mean if boris johnson gets in gets elected becomes prime minister which is looking likely that he will um that can, he he's a populist he's a liar there there's a there's a real danger and a real threat that his election can result in a in a culture change and an uprising of some of the nastiest elements of British society, it's a, it will be a massive validation for that. And that will, that will more than anything, will spur on the far right in Britain. So uh, there are some arguments being made that, oh, Boris Johnson being elected will mean that Brexit might be stopped because he's got to deal with the evening standard and that um, he's just a populist, he's not really that bad. And um, eventually that means Joris, um Corbyn will definitely be elected because he's the hardest to beat. Okay, those are arguments that can be had, but the reality is um, people on the ground level with racist views, with fascist views, will will gain in confidence and will mobilise and will organise, and for the long term, that is a huge danger for the left. So moving from the grassroots to the bigger picture, I think given the audience that we have today, most people will probably be agreed that Brexit is... is is uh, the instrument of fascism and the far right in Britain that it needs to be opposed and needs to be stopped and the Labour Party is, is the party that has to be coming out strongly and passionately against Brexit and the racism imbued within it and defending free movement. One of the reasons I think that it's been so easy for the Labour Party and for Jeremy Corbyn and his advisers to, to be leading this fudge on Brexit is because there aren't enough migrants and ethnic minorities already engaged as activists in the Labour Party. Because that voice is not organised and because that voice is not strongly represented, that, that critical call-out from the left doesn't have as much weight as it should. And, I mean, I don't know how we're going to you know, suddenly engage the entire 
you know, migrant and ethnic minority community in Britain. But I think hopefully, you know, there's been a good campaign and, and we can go forward with it. But ultimately, this is what needs to be done. Um, so yeah, so that's so. Thank thank you for listening. Sorry, I, I probably waffled and jumped from place to place a bit because this is, I'm still very much learning about the left and the labour movement and and how it works. Um, I've been quite disillusioned and, and, and quite uh, um, surprised, but I don't think that means we should give up. I think we can. Good things have happened. I think we should hold on to that, and I think we can. Um, reorganize, recalibrate and move forwards. Thank you very much. So um, the point that you made about the um, playing of ethnic groups against each other, I think you're absolutely right. And um, we should remember it's not just um, you know reactionary er er elements of certain communities that politicians um, pander to such as just like the Muslim community or the non-resident Indian community in relation to Modi. It's it's all the different communities. So this the whole Brexit issue is about pandering to an identitarian sort of white sentiment. And it there is no easy way to crack it. The easy ways to go to these uh, communities. I wouldn't describe them as reactionary. I would say some individuals are holding reactionary views. The easy way to the easy thing to do is go to them and say, oh yeah, we'll do what you want, we agree with you, just like and what a godsend is doing, it's his constituency, he doesn't want to upset. The, the hard thing to do is go to these communities and build um, real links and long-term conversations to change a, to change people's minds and change their views. And, and that's something that has to be done on an individual basis with grassroots organisation. And what makes it easier and what can accelerate it is when the same messaging is being um, sent out, you know, for, sent out very loudly and very clearly from the people who have national platforms, like the leader of the Labour Party and like MPs. And sadly, at the moment, we aren't having as strong a message against the racism inherent in the Brexit <coughs> movement as we need. Which, you know, we've got Ian Blackford calling Boris Johnson racist, but we're still waiting Jeremy Corbyn to come out and say that and make that clear and I think one of the reasons why some Labour MPs in the shadow cabinet may not be willing to go that far again is because of fear of alienating an identitarian constituency so uh, you're absolutely right um, uh, about what is happening and, uh, and I think again it's, it's something that at the grassroots we need to uh, address the, I think something really important that somebody mentioned that I didn't really talk about much, but I was intending to, was internationalism. I think um, this is a really hard thing to do. How It's really hard for someone like myself. I don't know how I'm going to build links with people across continents when I, when I be can barely afford to go on a holiday. But I think one of the key things and key tools that the left needs to use better and more is the internet and social media, because print and broadcast media is not going to be on our side. But social media and the internet is the way that we need to connect with other constituencies. And that's what Momentum mobilised really, really effectively. And sadly, Momentum has closed down a bit and it isn't fulfilling its potential because um, I remember um, going to a No Pass Run conference a while back and saying to Laura Parker and asking her, why can't Momentum do a collaborative video with left activists across Europe and internationally where we're all saying the same thing and the same message? Something like that that could go viral because different 
communities across the globe were ha had a stake in it. You know, and that's the kind of thing that momentum can do. Can it be resurrected? I don't know. I have, I'm new. You guys have, have seen the whole rise and potential stagnation of momentum. But should we try? Yes, I think we should. And finally, I'm not obviously not addressing, was the Corbyn project ever viable? Some of us think that there's some really obvious things that the Corbyn project could have done to continue its, you know, its rise and its expansion. One of those things is opposing Brexit because the massive conscious activists also oppose Brexit. I think the fudge is really demoralising people. So it could have been viable had it done that. I think that was something that it could have done. I don't know why it's gone wrong or where, but that's something I think that we can... It's getting very late on in the day now, um, but... Uh, at some point, the Labour Party needs to make a move, and, and we're losing our opportunity. Like you say, it is slipping away. I still think there's a window, um, but it has to happen extremely soon. The term Corbyn project and Corbyn 2.0, I, I don't. I think that these terms are really unhelpful because, again, they feed a personality cult rather than um, a movement fed by political consciousness and ideas. has been rejected. We run Ideas for Freedom every year. For more talks and discussions, come and join our now legendary annual socialist summer getaway above Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire on the 8th to the 11th of August. This will be a long weekend of music, campfires, food, drink and socialist discussions, workshops, tree climbing and messing about in the great outdoors. Open to all. More information and tickets from £20, including food, at workersliberty.org forward slash camp.